Today, as we come to Acts 4, 32 through 5, 16, we come to a pretty heavy passage. And, and it's interesting that this passage just happened by the coincidence of the Holy Spirit to fall on week two of Advent where we're talking about surrender and obedience. And in, in um, the, the song portion of our service, we read scripture and we read about Joseph and Mary who, who had some of the most extraordinary events happen to them, difficult events, things that would be embarrassing, things that would ruin their reputation, and they chose to obey. And they chose to follow what God had asked through the angels and go through with, with this crazy plan, this crazy rescue plan. At least it would be crazy to them, but not to God. And so they chose to obey. They chose to submit. They chose to give themselves over to God's work instead of submitting God's work to themselves. And, and that is such a key, key thing as we come to Christ, as we serve Him. Can we put ourselves wholeheartedly under God? Can we wholeheartedly be devoted to Him and serve Him? To, even above self, even above family, even above anything around us, is God number one? And so we see a beautiful example of that in Joseph and Mary. But in today's text, we see the opposite. We see an example of a couple that decided to put self above God's work, that decided to put how they looked and their reputation above the church and above what God was doing. And Satan is using them to try to derail the church's progress that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. Up until now in Acts, it's been amazing, right? The church is growing. A thousand this week, a thousand this week. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. And God is doing an amazing work. And last week we saw Satan try to stop it with external forces as, as authorities come. And they're like, stop it. Stop preaching. And so they went out and prayed for boldness so they could preach more. And that didn't work. And in today's text, we're going to see Satan try a different ploy and a different tactic to try to destroy the church from the inside out. To try to say, okay, out, external uh, opposition didn't work. What about sin from the inside? What if we can rot the church out at its core? I was thinking about that, and, and last year we, we redid one of our bathrooms at home. I don't know if I've, I've talked about this at all, but um, the kids' bathroom, we tore off the tile off the wall, and, and the drywall behind it just crumbled. And just, it just all kind, it had been damp apparently. There was a leak there. And then we get to the two-by-fours, and the two-by-fours in two of the sections were just gone. You could see where they stopped and it was all rotted out. And then you could see at the bottom where it probably used to be. Apparently two by fours are helpful in a wall. Um, and um, the tile was just sort of holding it up. And, and praise God, we didn't lose half the house. Or I, it, Praise God, it was not a, a bearing wall. But still, it, it was an, it, an interesting example of what rot from the inside will do. And rot from the inside takes away your structure. It takes away your support. It takes away the foundation of that wall. That wall could have collapsed at any time. And actually, it already was, was moving and cracks and all kinds of things happening, which was what necessitated the redo. The same is true of the church. Except it's, it's not dry rot. It's not water damage. It's when we allow sin to go unchecked in God's church, the ministry suffers. The unity suffers. God's church suffers. And so we come to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see this incident where Satan tries this ploy, he tries this opposition from the inside, 
and God deals with it decisively. And so, yes, this is a heavy passage. And my summary for the passage is, God reveals and deals with the sin that Satan attempts to use to derail the growing, unified, vibrant church. Satan would like nothing better than to derail that work. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we'll be starting in verse 32. And our text today will span into chapter 5. And remember, the chapter divisions weren't there when it was first written. And and the first part, 32 through 37 of 4, actually are are directly connected to the next next story of Ananias and Sapphira. They set up the story with a good example and then a bad example. So we have to look at these two together. And so Acts chapter 4, verse 32. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one under a seat right around you. We invite you to take that out, follow along. I want you to see this is God's Word. Not my words, but God's Word. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that as our gift to you because we want you to have God's Word. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, 32-37. And, and in this first section, 32-37... Sorry, the cough is back in full force today. Um, 32-37, we see another summary of the church. And so, so point number one is this is the summary of the thriving church in action. And, and we've just seen the opposition. We've just seen the, the authorities try to stop it. And so Luke here inserts, okay, this is how the church is doing after that opposition. But he's setting up this next story. And so we get something very similar to Acts chapter 2 when we talked about it. And we'll see some of the same points. But we see a picture, a snapshot in the early church. And I love these snapshots because we can learn so much out of it of what kinds of principles make a thriving church. What kinds of things did they pursue that we should be pursuing? And so we want to look at verses 32 through 37. I'm going to start with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was their own, but they had everything in common. The first thing we see there in that first phrase is the first characteristic of the thriving church was a deep unity with each other through Christ. A deep unity with each other through Christ. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. We saw this in Acts chapter 2. What keeps coming up is when people pursue God wholeheartedly, they get along. There is unity when we have the same purpose, the same goal. And even the wording here, heart and soul, heart refers... Um, the, the very center of ourselves, our core, our reason, our emotions, and our will. We think reason is the head. They, they would say the heart was reason and emotion together. It, it's that, that thing that makes you you. And so the heart is the devotion, the, the things that we crave, our passions, the things that are important to us. And then the soul, the word is our very lives, our very selves. And so you put these two together, and whenever these two are together, it has this idea of total devotion. Just a complete self sold out for something. And, and when it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, it's saying they had the same devotion to God. They had a common purpose. Basically, it's saying all of these thousands of people, they were sold out for God. Sold out to the death all about his purpose, all about being witnesses for him. This was their identity. Isn't there excitement when we're around people like that? 
Isn't there an excitement when we get around people that want to serve God and they're saying, look what God did here. Look what God did. Hey, let's do this. I think we could reach this person for Christ. And there's this, this excitement that builds that is a beautiful thing. And so this first one shows that the church loved God. Next one will show they loved others, but they loved God and they loved God deeply. First John 1 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. And it's the same concept. If, if we're walking in the light, if we're all focused on the light, and we're focused on the same light, then we have fellowship with each other. If we get the vertical right, the horizontal falls into place. When we start bickering, when we start having just animosity towards each other and things that we can't get over, that almost always means that the vertical is wrong in a church. And so, so if we're going to fix this, we've got to start with this. And we've got to get the devotion to the right person. And this is an interesting beginning to these, these two sections because we're going to see Barnabas that had the right devotion and acted on it. And we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira that had a very different devotion. It wasn't the same devotion. It was a devotion to self. Tozer wrote this. When he, when he, an example, and I'm just going to read it rather than, than retell it, but an example of how if we're all pointed the same direction, it helps us get along with each other. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. I love that. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ. They are in heart nearer to each other than they possibly could be were they to be focused on unity and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And so they were of one heart. They were tuned to the same fork. And that fork was a deep love for God. Commitment to the apostles' teaching as we saw in chapter 2. Commitment to prayer as we saw in in chapter 2. And commitment to doing God's work. Village, if we're going to be a thriving church, we've got to be tuned to the same fork. And that needs to be devotion to our Lord and Savior. That needs to trump everything else. We see in in that next phrase, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And the, the second characteristic of the thriving church was a sacrificial generosity to share with and care for each other jump down to 34 and he picks up this theme again um, in 34 and 35 because this is where the next two stories are going to go 34 it says and there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet And it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we see that they radically loved each other. They radically cared for each other. They sacrificially had generosity. In verse 33, or in verse, in, in, um, 32 rather, they, they viewed their stuff not as their own, not with tight hands, but they viewed their possessions, their money as, as God's. they're owners, but they're owned by God. And they're simply stewards of that. And so my bank account isn't mine. My bank account is owned by God and He has entrusted me to use it for His purposes. My house isn't mine. 
It's owned by God. He has entrusted me to use it for His purposes. The church got that. The early church was like, you know what? Nothing's my own. I'll share it. And so, and so we see here just a sharing with each other. They saw that, that God was the owner of their stuff, that they were just stewards of that. And so that enabled them to share it because I'm not sharing my stuff. You're, you're not ruining my car. You're sharing God's car. You got to deal with him if you crash it. And so they were able to share. They were able to care for each other. It, it, now in these, in, we see in, in verse 30, 34 and 35, we see that when there was a need, and the wording here is that it was, it was not that everyone had to sell everything they had. They weren't starting a commune. But when there was a need, they radically did what it took to met the need, meet the need. And it could be different people at different times. And so there was this idea that everything I have is going to go for the cause. Everything I have is going to be used by God. And so there, this, this selfless sharing was a characteristic of a thriving church. Now that's hard. It goes against our human nature. As kids, what do we learn real quickly? What word do we learn? Mine. Mine. And, and I, I still think of the little birds on the, the book. Mine, 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 mine. Um, I, I hate Disney for that. But um, <laughs> they're tapping into what's part of our human nature. And the early church because they had taken on God's nature and they were filled by the Spirit, was overcoming that. And so they cared for each other. They jumped into needs. Um, they, they would sell their homes if they need to or land and, and they would bring the proceeds. They would lay it at the apostles' feet. It's interesting because that imagery is one of trust. It's one of submission. And, and so they would say, here, use this for the kingdom somewhere. Use this however, however you see fit. And so they recognized authority. They submitted to it. One of the things I love about Village is just how we handle finances. Um, because it, it's, it's a mutual thing here where there is mutual accountability, there is mutual trust, and so the, the finances are just always transparent here. And things that are given to help people, it's always transparent. And... and Yes, the elders have to, to, to divide that. There's trust there. But then there's also accountability at the business meeting. And with the, it just, that transparency is just a good picture of what is happening here. Um, and so the, the people came and laid it at the apostles' feet. They trusted because they were going to meet needs and they were going to do whatever it took to meet needs. The third characteristic of the thriving church that we see here in verse 33, jumping back to 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. A thriving church is powerfully sharing about Jesus. They are powerfully sharing about Jesus. Guys, if we forget the the goal of sharing Jesus, if we aren't powerfully sharing that, if we're not committed to that, then we are not acting as God's church. We are not fulfilling the reason God created His church to carry on the work of Jesus Christ. And so they were powerfully sharing about Jesus. Keep in mind, this is the section right after they were told not to. Right after they they were told that there would be more punishment if they did. And they said, no, we're going to obey Acts 1.8. We're going to continue the work of Jesus. We're going to bear witness. 
was, was bearing a powerful witness. And, and all of these things, I think, go together. As they were meeting needs, that was part of their witness and gave them the credibility for the, the witness. As they were devoted to God that gave, and the Holy Spirit, that gave them the power behind the witness. In the last phrase in 33, the fourth characteristic we see in this text for the, for the thriving church, great grace was upon them all. And this is one of those phrases, it's just a, it's six words, seven words if you have the end. And it can be a throwaway phrase. Oh yeah, that's just in there. But think about what it means for a church to be described as a church of great grace. As a church that great grace is upon them all. That's a powerful statement. That they were experiencing the grace of God. That they, and, and grace can mean favor there. It, it means God giving something we don't deserve but ultimately, the, the, the greatest act of that is salvation. And so this church is aware of those, their salvation. They're aware of what God has done. And then they're just spilling that over on each other and showing grace to each other. Oh, that we would be known as a church that gave a lot of grace to each other. Because it's God's grace. That we would know the forgiveness of our sins and not live in guilt and not live, live under the penalty of sins but then be able to show God's grace to each other. And that's part of how a vibrant church is an example for Jesus Christ. So we have those four characteristics of, the, of a thriving church. And then we get into the two examples that we want to talk through today. The first one is a quick example, 36 and 37. It's the positive example of Barnabas. And we should take notice because Barnabas is going to become a a character we're we're familiar with later on in Acts. This is where he's introduced. He's introduced as a man that is sold out for Jesus, that is devoted to the gospel, which sets up he's going to be one of the first missionaries that is sent out by the church because we see his heart here. We see his life. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, so his original name was Joseph. They gave him the nickname Barnabas which means son of encouragement. I, talk about a great nickname. I, it's not like shorty or um, stinky or something like that. It's you're an encourager. You're the son of encouragement. So that's, a, that's his name now, Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, one of the islands in the Mediterranean Sea. He sold a field that, field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's all we get about Barnabas here. We'll get more later. But it's a positive example of sacrifice. We just got the description of the church and, and Luke is saying, okay, here's an example of it. Barnabas did it. He put the needs of the community above his own needs. He, he put the, the goal of serving Christ and doing ministry for Christ above self. And so we get this insight into his character. And the needs were met because the apostles divided it. So that's the positive example. And Luke is using that now to set up the first section of Acts chapter 5. And this is the negative example, the threat, I call it in your notes. Sin is waiting at the door to destroy the work and unity from God. Sin is waiting at the door to destroy the work and unity from God. I want to read through all 11 verses with a little bit of commentary as we go and then pull some, some insights out of it. It starts with, but a man named Ananias. And the but there says this is in contrast to Barnabas. Okay, You have Barnabas, good example. But let's talk about this other couple. 
And it's important, the Holy Spirit put this in His Word to, to, to make us aware of the impact of sin. And as we, we do these 11 verses, I pray that we see the gravity of the situation. This is more than a Sunday school story. This is what actually happened, and, and it reflects a holy God. And so we see, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So far, so good. Now keep in mind, they probably were in church or, or in, in the gathering when Barnabas did this. And so Barnabas brings the money, and there's probably accolades. Not that Barnabas would have wanted it, but people are like, wow, praise God. And, and it's a good thing. And Ananias and Sapphira, they're at home, and this is a little bit of imagination, but they're talking it through, and they're like, we can do that. We have a piece of property. And we're going to find out that it wasn't so much about meeting needs, but we have a piece of property. We can sell this. What will people say about us then? It is going to elevate our status in the church. And so verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge, this was a joint thing. This wasn't one person over another. They did this together. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we see the setup here. And the kept back, it's interesting. It's a word that's not often used. When it's used, it always means to embezzle or to skim off the top. It's a negative word. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that was used of Achan when he kept some of what was to be devoted to God, hid it under his tent. And we saw God deal with that sin when we studied through Joshua. And so it's this idea that he kept something back that belonged to God. Now, now we're, go- we're going to get there, but what we're going to see in the rest of the passage is the sin here wasn't that he didn't give the whole amount to God. The sin, as we're going to find out, is that he told the church it was the whole amount. He presented it as, look at this, I sold my house for a million dollars. He didn't say that. But then he brings in 500000 and says, yeah, this is what I sold my house for. I'm giving it all to God. Why would you do that? You look better, right? Man, if, if, if I say I sold my house and you know what? I, I kept 900000 for myself and gave, gave God 10000 Okay, that's a good thing, but that doesn't have the same reputation as I gave $910,000 to God. Look at me. And so that's the setup here. It's a hard issue. And we have to read the whole test to under, the text to understand that. So then we get to, to verse 3. And the Holy Spirit enlightens Peter. He says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? I can just picture Ananias going, Oh, uh, the plan's not working. That's not the accolades I was after. But Peter, through the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, I believe, confronted the sin. While it remained unsold, and this is where we know that he didn't have to give it all, but it was the deception. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have done whatever you wanted and not sinned with it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And there we know that he lied to the church but God took it as a lie to him. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Divine judgment was immediate. The sin was dealt with. 
and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Can I just say a word about fear there? We sometimes think of the fear of the Lord as awe. And that's definitely part of it. But fear of the Lord also means dread. And and we need to see the gravity of this. And in this case, that's the range of meaning that it's focused in on. The people that saw this were, were in dread of God in a relational way, in the same way that if you have two kids and they do the same task and the first one gets a spanking, what's the second one thinking? Oh boy, I'm next, right? And, and, and so in that same way, this, this, the whole congregation suddenly realized how serious sin is. How big of an issue it is, especially as God is doing a work. And so we see, and Peter even calls them out, that Satan is the one that did this. Satan is trying to stop the work. The young man rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. And then we get a corresponding passage or story, part of the story with his wife. After an interview of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Hard to know how that happened. Maybe she was out shopping at Target or whatever, and she comes in, and she's thinking, I'm going to come in. My husband's already given the money. It's going to be a good day. She comes in, verse 8, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She had a choice. She had a choice at that time. Tell the truth or continue the lie. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, mega fear, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of those things. Wow. That text should give us pause if we believe our God is still holy. If we are, believe our God will still protect His work and make sure His work goes forward. This should make every one of us stop and look inside. Not at the person next to us, but look inside and say, is this me? Is this me? And what's interesting, just a, a couple of points as we break this down, we see elements in this story that are breaking down all four of those elements of a thriving church. We had four elements of a thriving church. Satan attacks every one of those with Ananias and Sapphira. The first was a wholehearted devotion to God, right? They were devoted to the same thing. Here, the sin is directly a devotion to something other than God. The sin is, oh, you don't have to give it all. Why don't you give just a part and, and then say it's all, and what they're doing is elevating devotion to self, devotion to reputation, devotion to getting more likes on Facebook above their walk with God. And so they valued reputation and status over devotion to God and over the church. Now, now it is easy, understand this, it is easy in a close church family to be thinking about what people think. I would bet we all do it in our own church family. Well, what are people going to think about this? 
What are people going to think about this? And it is easy to exaggerate or color the truth or leave out certain points so we look a little better. But the call here is for integrity. The call here is for truth. And to be so devoted to God that we are devoted to His holiness rather than how I look. Rather than if I'm bowing to the idol of approval. And so they sold the land. They brought part of the money. Claimed it was all. And they lied. They lied to the church. But they lied to God because this was His people. The church is His body. This was in the assembly, in worship. And they are using worship. They are using the church for their selfish purposes. To boost self. God hates it when we use His work for self-centered purposes. But that's what they were doing. They were in His house manipulating His church, going against His character and His work. They were loving the idol of reputation and money more than Him. And so as we've seen in a number of passages in our studies, they were using Christianity for personal gain. And it was self-worship. We also see hypocrisy here, don't we? They were lying about their relationship with God to the church. They were presenting, and what I mean by that is they were presenting a different picture of their relationship with God than reality. I've given everything for God. No, actually you haven't. And it would have been fine to say, hey, we sold our property, we needed some for this, but we're we're giving this to God. That would have been completely different and within the realm of serving God. But they were pretending to be more spiritual than they actually were. One author wrote, God cannot stand unfaithfulness and pretending to be holy is contemptible contemptible mockery. Amen. And so this attacks the unity of devotion to God because now you have two major players in your church that are devoted to self and that fractures the, the common unity. Their heart was divided. You know, we, we talked about that the early church was caring for each other and sacrificially caring for each other. In this case, the sin was harming others. And it was a direct attack on, on, on caring for each other. And, and village, our sin always harms people. Whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not, when we live in sin, it harms people around us, it harms the church, and it harms the work of God. You cannot sin in isolation. This whole myth of, in our culture today, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody, so it's okay. That is a lie from the pit of hell, because then Satan can use that to harm the people around you. And and so here, they weren't devoted to the church. They weren't devoted to caring for others. If the Holy Spirit had put it on their hearts to give the whole amount, and they didn't, that means needs were going to go unmet that the Holy Spirit wanted to meet. Think about this. They conspired together. They agreed together. And so they harmed each other to the death because no one was willing to stand up and say, you know what, I think this is wrong. I think this is sin. And, and so Satan attacked the, the, the care for each other with this sin by saying, you don't have to sacrifice as much to look good. You know, you're helping a little bit. And so greed comes into it, wanting the recognition and the money. 
And they sacrifice their relationship with others, the care for others, their walk, their joy, their fellowship. Another point of sin here, which is why I believe God deals with this so directly and so quickly, our sin always compromises God's witness. We are ambassadors for Christ, which means we are representatives of God. When I sin, it compromises God's witness. It compromises the church's witness. It gets in the way of the work of God. And God is starting a new work with the church. And he's like, nope, that's not, that's not stopping it. Satan put it in their heart to derail what the church was doing. And the church now had to stop sharing the gospel. They had to stop doing these things because they had to bury people and they had to deal with sin and they had to deal with the aftermath. You don't think something like this has an aftermath? If I called out two of you right now and you fell dead, do you think our, our attention would be on something other than sharing the gospel for a moment? Now, now, holiness and purity and dealing with sin is important but if we can keep from having to go down that path and stay on doing god's work that's huge what's sad to me is i hear story after story in the news of the church's testimony being compromised today leader after leader fall and it compromises the church's witness And the same is true of members, of of church members, not just leaders. If someone sees you cussing and acting in an ungodly way and getting angry and just mistreating people while you're wearing the church has left the building shirt or, or while they're seeing the fish on the back of your car, do you think that affects their view of God and their view of the church? Yeah, something's left the building. When they see how you treat your spouse and and, and when they see you not treating your spouse with love and care and appreciation, do you think that says something about your Christianity? When they see your boyfriend or girlfriend's car there overnight and leave in the morning, do you think that affects your testimony? It does, village. It does. And so God is trying to keep His church holy for the purpose of people coming to Him. For the purpose of his work. Sin matters. It affects credibility. And, and, and I'm trying to balance the seriousness and the gravity of this with, yes, God forgives sin. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But, but we dare not take sin lightly because we can go to God and get a forgiveness. Because sin has consequences. The church today especially and the believer must have a high standard of integrity, especially in this critical world. Finally, just a last point on this. The last thing it attacks, I think, is God's grace, which we saw as a, as a feature of the early church. All sin mocks God's grace, spits, in the, spits on the cross. And they used God's favor on them to turn it into a self-centered boost. Every time we sin, we are minimizing the weight of the cross. We are minimizing the beauty of the incarnation. And so we want to honor God's grace. We see in how God dealt with sin that He takes it seriously. He will not let His church rot from the inside out. Because the church puts God's holiness on display. Last five verses there. 
the work and unity are restored. This is the aftermath. This is saying, okay, what happened now that God dealt with sin? And it's a beautiful passage that shows restoration. It shows that the work continued. The church grows again in sincere believers as God continues His work. Verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And so these signs and wonders that were talked about in 4.30 that they prayed for in verse 30 in the last chapter, they're happening again. Because now we have unity of devotion to the Lord again. They were all together in Solomon's portico. And that's again unity restored. All together, we've seen that, that phrase several times, and it refers to a coming together in heart and spirit. Oh, it was good to worship together again. Now here's some of the interesting things that happened. Verse 13. None of the rest, and that's a term that was used for outsiders or for unbelievers at the time, none of the rest dared to join them. They had all heard about what happened. And like, that's, that's serious stuff. And so none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I'm not going there, but that's really cool. God's doing a work there. God is holy, but I don't know if I should go there. Now, verse 14 seems like a contradiction, and let me explain that. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The thing is, people were scared to come in now. There was a fear. There was a dread and awesomeness of God because they saw the gravity of sin. But many did still come, and those that came were the sincere believers. What this, what this event ended up doing is waiting out the, the insincere Christians, the ones that are in name only, the ones that are just along for the show. Well, if, if you're just along for the show, you're not going to come close because you're not dealing with your sin. But when you understand... And this is, this is the beauty of the passage that Jesus Christ on the cross dealt with our sin and gave us His righteousness and gave us His holiness. When the people understood that and gave their lives to Christ, then they came in by the thousands. And so this weeded out a lot of cultural Christians. For us, that's what we would call them. For them, people that were just along for the show. And God was still healing and, and, and people were amazed at what God was doing. Verse 16, Acts 1-8 starting to happen. Get this. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. This is the first verse that talks about it's spreading. Beyond Jerusalem. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I want to end as worship team comes up by reminding ourselves of God's grace. We can look at a passage like this and say, okay, if any of us sin, we're going to drop dead right now. And so next week is going to be a really small group. Or we can end by saying, God made a way for His grace to cover this. And a thriving church experiences God's grace. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for that sin. And so this is a call to look inside and to say, to do some business with God. Say, is there sin in my life that I'm struggling with? 
But by God's grace, He's given a payment for that. He's given away. Ananias and Sapphira, that was a, a, a sin that was not only stopping the, the beginning of the church, the growth of the church, but it was an intentional act of defiance. Even when asked and given the opportunity to change their mind, they didn't. And, and for us, we still have that opportunity as long as we breathe to say, Lord God, I come to you. I give my sin to you. I want to experience your forgiveness because you died on the cross and rose again three days later. And so the gospel covers this. The gospel turns this story from a a, a story of fear to a story of beauty because Jesus Christ took that penalty that Ananias and Sapphira rightly got. They took that penalty for us, or Jesus did. And if we come to him, then we can experience his grace. And we are saved. I'd like to stand and and end with one more Christmas song that really talks about God's grace. And that we are sinners. We are not worthy. But praise God. Lord, we pray as your church that you would reveal sin in our lives. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our ways. See if there be any grievous way in us. Lord, reveal that to us so we can be of one devotion so even as we go into living nativity, our hearts can be sold out for your work and sin will not be a barrier to what you want to do this week. And so Lord, I pray that you would reveal sin and if anyone here has sin that they're dealing with, that they are hanging on to, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would enable them to give that up to you and to ask for forgiveness, experience your grace and stop. Lord, may we as a church be dedicated to your holiness and dedicated to your grace and encourage each other and lift each other up so we can see you work in mighty, mighty ways. And Lord, we pray that today. We pray that this week. Do a work in our hearts and then do a work through our church. In your precious name.